0: The scripture reading tonight is from Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says I brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery, and I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Father, thank you for this opportunity to praise you tonight, to be reminded that all over the, the Roman Empire, as your church was being established firmly in the world, that that all your people would cry together, Exerge Domine, Arise, God, arise, Lord. And we say that with them and praise you tonight, and ask for you to arise in our hearts and to arise in our church family, and to arise in our world. Thank You, Father, for, for blessing us. And thank You for revealing Yourself to us in such a way that it, it just triggers, Father, a praise from our hearts. And thank You for the text that, uh, that David has, has read tonight. We pray to, to study it diligently tonight and to press our mind into it To this end, Father, knowing that we need Your help, we ask You to give us eyes that see and ears to hear. And again, Father, thank You for the life of Gideon as it has been revealed to us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a really interesting book that has been written called, The Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. The authors of this book argue that our tendency to justify our actions is more powerful and deceptive than an explicit lie. They write in regard to self-justification that it allows people to convince themselves that what they did was the best thing they could have done. In fact, come to think of it, it was the right thing to do. And so we hear people say all the time, there was nothing else I could have done. Actually, it was a brilliant solution to the problem. I was doing the best for the nation. Those fill-in-the-blank jerks deserved what they got. I'm entitled. When researchers asked husbands and wives what percentage of the housework they do, the wives say, are you kidding? I do almost everything, at least 90%. And the husbands say, well, you know, I do a lot too, about 40%. Now, although the specific numbers differ from couple to couple, the total always exceeds 100% by a significant margin. And I quote, It's tempting to conclude that one spouse is lying But it is more likely that each is remembering in a way that enhances his or her contribution. Over time, as the self-serving distortions of memory kick in, we come to believe our own lies little by little. We know we did something wrong, but we gradually begin to think that it wasn't our fault. And after all, the situation was complex. We start underestimating our own responsibility, whittling away at it until it is a mere shadow of its former hulking End of quote. In other words, humans would rather justify or rationalize than change. Why? Because it's easier. George Santayana wrote, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This is why we are incapable of of not repeating history even when we do know it. Which brings us to the end of the 5th chapter and the beginning of the 6th chapter of Judges with a familiar but always sad refrain. Judges chapter 5, verse 31. Then the Lord had peace 40 years. The very next verse, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, did evil in the eyes of the Lord is sort of a euphemism for idolatry. And the result is that God gives Him over for seven years to the Midianites. Now, this is a a, a crucially bad situation for the Israelites. They literally have to go and live in caves out in the wilderness. The Midianites were not all that interested in political control as they were in wanting to create economic hardship by ruining crops and wiping out livestock. Basically, trying to bring Israel to its knees financially and spiritually. And so we read in verse 4, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel Neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. Israel was living such a ragged existence that they cry out to God. And it's the same thing over and over again. Even though they know their history and they know the Word of God, they somehow rationalize or justify this this downward trajectory, this slippery slope that they get on, that brings them to the point that they are completely evil in the eyes of God by worshiping idols. And so they've cried out to God, binding themselves at the hands, the ruinous hands of the Midianites. And God sends in the prophet. And what is interesting is that before there's rescue, there's repentance. Or what we should say is repentance before rescue. This time, God does not initially send a judge. He's already done that with Othniel and and Ehud and Shamgar and, and Deborah. This time, God does not initially send a judge to rescue the people, but sends instead a prophet. And the prophet does what prophets do. He reminds the people that they should think of God as king over all, but especially as king of their hearts. And this is why in this particular instance, this prophet, this is why he reminds them of a little bit of their own personal history with God. That God is the One. God is saying, I am the One who brought you out of Egypt, out of that slavery. I rescued you out of the hands of the Egyptians. I delivered you from your oppressors. I am the One that drove them out before you. I am the Lord your God. In other words, this God, a God of their history, a God of their intimate knowledge, is a God who has their best interests at heart. He is not a God that enslaves, but He is a God that liberates them. And because all of that is true, He says, Do not worship the other gods, the gods of the Amorites, except that the people did not listen again. This prophet is giving the people a reason to rethink their steps that have led them to the present situation. Why? Why? I'm going to give you two, but there's probably three. They keep repeating it. But one reason is so that they can appreciate, I mean truly appreciate the rescue. The Israelites are where they are because they are idolaters at heart. And then secondly, and I think most importantly, He sends this prophet because because their crying out to Him is only skin deep. I mean, how in the world do you explain the cycle. God blesses and God blesses and God blesses and with time they begin to do evil in his sight. That is, they begin to worship the idolaters. God becomes angry with them. God brings an oppressor towards uh, towards Israel or into Israel that oppresses them and to the point where they recognize that this is slavery. This is not working out. This idol is dangerous. This idol is, is toxic. And what we need is God in our life again. And so they cry out to God and God rescues them as He did in Egypt, but He's doing it for the umpteenth time. This is the cycle that keeps going on and on and on and on. How else do you explain the cycle except that they're they're crying out is skin deep. It's time for the cycle to end. It's time for the people to repent. And it's here that we begin to see what repentance is really all about. Repentance, and this is an Absherian uh, definition, Repentance is making profound changes in life that appear transformational as a person moves to God rule. It's, it's not just profound changes in habits. It's not just profound changes in life in the way that you go about your business every day. It's about making those profound changes in life that make it look as if your life has been transformed by something incredibly powerful that's impacted your heart like an anvil. And it's, it's that repentance that is moving people towards God rule in their heart. It involves most of the time, the majority of the time, a heartfelt sorrow. The recognition that you know, if you've been in a relationship with God, that you've strayed from it. And you've recognized the fact that God is a God who does not enslave but actually liberates you from the tyranny of the idols. And you have somehow allowed your heart to grow cold towards Him. And now it's time to feel sorrow that you allowed it to happen. There is a renouncement of, of the sin, of the idolatry, of whatever it might be. It's not just heartfelt sorrow. It's not just feeling sad. It's not just weeping that you've done this. But it's a renouncement of the very attraction of the idol to your heart. It's a commitment To forsake it. It's a commitment to obedience to God. Now this is what Paul was concerned about. It's the same issue with the church in Corinth when when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Regret and repentance. Repentance and regret are both experiences of sorrow. You have repentance and you have regret. And both of those are, are triggered by, by sorrow and pain and anguish in the heart. But one leads to life. And the other one leads to death. Regret is focused on the consequences. You know, if there's not any consequences, then there's no sorrow. Think about all those times you got in trouble with your dad or with your mom. You did something, and the reason you did it is because you wanted something that was against the rules or against house you know the house rules and you did it and the only reason that you're really regretting it is because you got caught if you didn't get caught if there were no consequences you'd be going ah, i think i can do that one again it's focused on the personal hurt sorry i got caught sorry to feel the embarrassment regret really focuses on moving on i'm i'm sorry that this has happened But it's time to move on. It's time to put this part of my life behind me. That's regret. It doesn't bring about that that change in life that looks like you're being transformed as God begins to rule in your heart. Repentance, on the other hand, is about sorrow that leads to that major transactional change in your life. Repentance is about repudiating the problem of your heart. And so God sends the prophet before he will send a judge. He sends a prophet to these people before the judge who will rescue them in order for them to see with clarity where they are making the wrong turns. And this is also one of the reasons why we have to have knowledge of the Word. It's a very dramatic thing to cry out to God. You're looking for something sensational to happen, I mean, you're in a pit. And you need somebody that is going to to hoist you out. You're in trouble and looking for God to intervene and to make it right. In this particular situation, God doesn't send, He doesn't send the miracle, He doesn't send the rescuer. What He sends instead is a sermon. And the point is, there's just no way around the importance of knowing the Word of God in your heart, deep down in your heart. Psalm 119, verse 9, which is really a psalm. That just makes much of the Word of God. But Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? It's by living according to your Word. You know, inside of God's Word, you find the structures for life that work, that that, that give you a successful life. Psalm 119, verse 105, your Word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. But the prophetic Word is more than just instructional and informational. This is what you do, this is what you don't do. This is how you live and this is how you don't live. It's more than instructional and informational. Prophets prophets appeal to the heart. The prophets use the words of relationship in order for people to understand God's side of it. To understand what sin is not only doing to the relationship with God and what it does to God's heart, but what it does to the human being. Sin is like adultery, the prophets say. It's not just transgressing a law. You know, something that's just intellectual. Sin is like adultery where someone's heart is broken because of diminished love and broken trust and betrayal and disloyalty. Sin is transgressing a command, but it feels like being jilted. Sin is is breaking the rules of relationship. It's the wife who finds inappropriate text messages on the husband's phone. It's it's the husband who discovers his wife's lie about how the money is being spent. It's the wife playing second fiddle to the husband's job. It's the husband who discovers that his wife is lying about where she's spending her time during the day. And this is why the prophet comes and hits the replay button on Israel's history. He goes, "You're chasing after all these idols." You're allowing your heart to be sucked in through these these really terrible desires. You're allowing your heart to be sucked into places where you're going to be damaged and hurt and diminished as a human being and ultimately killed. Who is it, though, that brought you out of centuries of slavery and suffering and misery and poverty and no hope, hopelessness? Who was it... That, that liberated you out of that kind of a life. Remember what it means to be a suffering, enslaved, miserable, exhausted people. And then the God of the universe chooses you to love. This is precisely the prophetic voice of Paul reminding the disciples in Ephesus that they were once dead in their transgressions and iniquity. There's a church that is, 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 is jammed up in all of its relationships because, well, all of a sudden things like race and ethnicity and back historical background and people history begin to matter. And Paul, with the voice of a prophet, says, do you not remember where you came from? What it is that when you think about your own life, what it is that the God of the universe did for you, he, because of His great love for us, God, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And He says it again, even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace that you have been saved. And when your heart and your mind give a full dose of the Gospel, when you read... The Word of God. And it's not just merely trying to figure out what the commands are and what the rules are and what the law is all about. But you read the Word of God and as, as, as Jesus said over and over again, it points to me. As you read God's Word, and begins to expand your mind and your soul and your knowledge of what God is really like. And you begin to see the face of God on the pages of the Bible. You begin to discern the areas of your life that need to be changed in order to live a life that's worthy of the love that you've been shown in the Gospel. And that's why God sends the prophet before the judge. The judge that's going to rescue him, because they need, they need to discern their lives in order to change. How much time each day do you think about the quality of your life as you live it before God? Depth of your discipleship, the transformation of your soul. Are you, like Israel, during this time of the judges, still stuck into destructive patterns that there's no progress? You know, it really might be a sign that you're, you know, that you feel pretty bad about it, but not enough to repent if you're still stuck in those patterns. What we need to develop as a people is a daily degree of self-discernment. What we need, but do not get a lot of the time, is that perspective on our hearts. You know, Frederick Buechner, uh, in a book on preaching, one of the most profound books on preaching, is called Telling the Truth. He says over and over again that the Gospel is bad news before it's good news. The Gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the bad news that 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 we're really not as beautiful as we think we are. We're not as talented, we're not as skilled, we're not as great, we're not as pure. We're not we're not the people that we really think that we are. And once we begin to see that it is not within our power to drag us up out of to hoist ourselves out of that hole, then the gospel becomes good news because then we begin to realize that through love and mercy and compassion, God's grace comes streaming through the clouds into our our dark night, bringing the light and bringing the hope. In such a way that it completely changes us. That we don't just become better people morally, but we become people of eternity. We become people that 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 reflect that reflect God who lives in eternity. We begin to reflect, we begin to reflect the values of a God who created all things. But it begins with the discernment in order to change. A change that looks like we are being transformed by some great power as we move deeper and deeper into the rule of God in our hearts. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe that's one of the things that you've been struggling with. Maybe you've you've seen the same old pattern in your life. That you go for a while and you go for a while, but then you just seem to be stuck in the same patterns. And maybe what you need is help not just to feel that sorrow and to feel that regret, but to drive it more deeply into your into your existence the repentance, the change that is needed and we can help with that tonight, or maybe you're discovering that one of the things that is true about your life is that you know you're never going to be able to get yourself out of the mess out of the issues that regardless of how how you might try with all of your might and with all of your strength and with all of your intellectual abilities to do the right thing and to think the right thing and to have that purity of heart. You realize that over and over and over again in that unguarded moment that all of a sudden you're plummeting into the darkness again. The hope that is offered is that God sees suffering, exhausted, impoverished, enslaved people and specifically, the person that you are. And in His love, the Creator of the universe, through His power, through His mercy, through His His might, through His righteousness, through His mercy, pulls you out and puts you in a place where you become His. And He is yours. And it is a blessing and it is a, 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 a transformation that well, quite frankly, one of the one of the struggles that the New Testament writers have is trying to describe it because it's that profound. It feels like being pulled out of fire. It feels like being born again. it It feels like becoming a bride when you never thought that anybody would ever want you or that you could ever be beautiful. It's like being a vine that is planted in the ground and, and and where you have always experienced just the lack of fruitfulness and the lack of blossoming and the lack of flourishing. All of a sudden, God is planting you in the ground and you're becoming, through the flourishing of your life and through the bearing of fruit and the blossoming of your life and having buds where you never thought you had buds, all of a sudden, you're becoming the person that God always intended for you to be. That's the power of the Gospel. And it, one, of, one of the doors that has to open door. Uh, that has to open though before it impacts your heart is to realize that it's Him and it's not you that, that makes that change. You discern in order to change. And you know the kind of God that He is through His Word. And you look, you look for all of that grace to be the greatest blessing in your life. And if that describes you, we're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front who'd love to talk to you about how to get in contact with that God tonight, and for the rest of us that stand and praise God together.